The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, 17 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Esther. I'm going to need a towel. Uh, Todd, it looks like you are too, unless you had an accident there. Um, and I didn't realize sitting on the front row I would be getting rebaptized today. I would have, would have invited my parents had I known that was going to happen. So, there you go. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know uh, how many of you uh, know that we have three locations as a church, and the the lead pastor of our Cool Springs congregation, Russ Ramsey, uh, put out on Facebook yesterday. Uh, remember, tonight is Daylight Savings, the bad one. Uh, this is the year that you lose, an, or this is the season of the year that you lose an hour of sleep. And uh, just so you know, we, we told the people who came to the 8.30 and then to the two 9.30 services at the other locations that God does not love them any more than He loves you. So rest assured, uh, you're equally loved for sleeping in. Uh, and uh, I want to um, uh, direct our attention now to, uh, to this magnificent text. It's got so much uh, in there to consider. Um, and so let me uh, just start by pointing out the way that theologians often talk about the church and the role of the church in the world. They talk about the church gathered and also the church scattered. So we're right now the church gathered. We've come together to gather and to point our attention to God, to His Word, to Jesus Christ, and, and so on. Uh, but then we're scattered out into the world, into the places where we live and, and work and play, and, and, and it's with a purpose. Jesus says 
uh, here to 72 of His disciples that He is sending them or sending us out. The word there is apostello. We get the word apostle from that. It, it means that every follower of Jesus Christ uh, is actually an apostle uh, with a little a, uh, but an apostle still. We're sent out with a purpose. And the Bible uses a lot of sensory language to give us a sense of, 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 of how He intends for us to engage the world. Uh, it talks about how we're sent out as the salt of the earth. We're supposed to bring out and enhance of the flavor or the goodness that's already out there in, in, in the world, the, the presence of the people of Jesus is supposed to, to bring out the best in all of that. But the Bible talks about how we are the light of the world, we're to illuminate uh, the darkness, we're to, to lift the mood uh, in, in, in the places that, that God places us, and it talks about how uh, believers in Christ go out into the world as the aroma of Christ. There should be a, uh, an essence or a scent or a or a, an atmosphere that, that uh, because we're in it, uh, feels more life-giving and is experienced as more life-giving than it would be without us. And, and so last week, we, we looked at a group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees are actually a group of people that, that, that don't have this kind of effect on the world, but instead they go out into the world and, and, and sort of bring kind of a stench a relational stench of smugness and self-righteousness and contempt for other people who aren't measuring up to, to their idea of, 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 of what a good person is supposed to be. It says that they're adding burdens on people instead of subtracting burdens from people, and, and that's not a picture of, of what the people of Christ in the world is supposed to look like. Uh, I think Leslie Newbigin, uh, missiologist uh, and scholar, uh, sums it up pretty well when, when he tries to summarize what Christians out in the world is supposed to, to look like and feel like and what the dynamic is supposed to be. Uh, we're supposed to be life-giving. We are supposed to be for our city, not against our city. We're supposed to be for our neighbors, not against our neighbors. We're supposed to so love the world just as God did that, that we give just as Jesus did. Uh, Newbigin said this, he says that the impact of the grace of God on churches and on followers of Christ should be that we will renounce an introverted concern for our own life and recognize that we exist for the sake of those who are not yet members of our community. As a sign and as an instrument and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. So, so we're called, we're sent, we're apostelloed out into the world to have a life-giving influence. Christians in the world, the, the church scattered, are to be neighbors filled with grace and truth who add value and leave things better, who add value and leave things better. And so, I'm going to unpack what some of the things that Jesus meant by this under a couple of headings. I'm going to cut you some slack, two points today because of daylight savings good neighboring and embracing weakness as the means toward good neighboring. So, good neighboring. So, Jesus starts with presence. If, if, if you want to be my people in the world, you've got to get out there. You've got to put yourself in the mix. Don't create ghettos off to the side with Christian language and Christian cheeseburgers and, and, and you know, Christian this and Christian that. 
Your role in the world is not to separate and remove yourself from it or to stand over it in judgment. Your, your role is to get in to the world and help the world become more beautiful with the resources that I've given you with which to do that. And that includes three things. Be inclusive, be holistic in the way that you do ministry, and be kind. So, inclusive. He sends out 72 people. Now, this would have been a very familiar number to uh, people from especially the Judeo-Christian tradition because it, it would hearken uh, them back to Genesis chapter 10, which, uh, you know, we look at as, uh, you know, as Bible readers as uh, the table of nations is what it's called. There are essentially 72 nations that are listed in, in Genesis chapter 10 all the way back to the beginning as a signal that God came not only to be the God for Israel, but also for the whole world. He says to Abraham, the father of faith, all the way back in the beginning, you are going to be the father of many nations, and your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And then you go to the last book of the Bible, sort of like bookends, you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and it says that Christ has come for the healing and renewal and restoration of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. You get that in the Great Commission, go into all the world, to ta ethne, to all ethnic groups, to all people groups, baptizing them, preaching the gospel to them, and so on. And so, so here, though, when, when we're talking about the 72, when we're referring back to the table of nations, the starting point is this, that Christianity is incompatible with nationalism. It's not a political statement. That's a biblical statement. I'm not siding with one party over another or one, you know, politician over another. I'm just making a simple biblical statement from the very beginning. Christianity is not compatible with nationalism. We're thinking that one part of the world is superior to another part of the world. One part of the world is the special people, and another part of the people is not. One part of the world is a city on the hill, and the rest of the world is not. No, the people of God, the kingdom of God, scattered throughout all nations is, is the people that God called the city on a hill. It's a nation of people from every nation, and from every tribe and every tongue. And, and, and this was a hard message for Jesus' audience, because Jesus' audience were filled with nationalists. Somehow they had started to feel special and privileged because Jesus came first for the Jew, not only for the Jew, but first for the Jew, but they, they, they mistook first for only. And so the cities that He lists uh, in, in verses 13 and following, as He says to the 72, go out into these cities. The cities that he lists here are cities that the typical first century religious minority, a Christian or a Jew, would ordinarily despise because they were under Greco-Roman influence. And the Greco-Roman authorities and political establishment was anti-religious minorities. You know, the 72 would have likely thought more about Rome like Jonah thought about Nineveh run the other way. I don't want to take the grace and kindness and love and forgiveness of God to them because I'd rather see God punish them, put them in their place, and, and, and crush them politically through some powerful leader that He raises up. That's their view of what Messiah and salvation was supposed to be. It was chiefly political, and it was chiefly dominant and Darwinian. 
And then to, to drive it home, after all of this happens, Jesus gives them, in the same chapter, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a Samaritan, again, a person from a despised nation to those who would be within the 72, from a despised nation, so despised that it would say in John chapter 4 that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That was where they were. These are your enemies. I want you to go to them, and I want you to do healing things in their midst. You know, so if you're here maybe considering Christianity, you know, every Sunday uh, we, we, at our churches we, we, we have people in our midst who don't identify with Jesus, who aren't bought in, who, who don't embrace what we believe. And, and we love that, and, and we love to keep our doors open to, to people from all different perspectives, to come and consider, to come and engage in dialogue. But if you are among those here considering Christianity right now, I want you to consider a couple of things. First of all, there's nothing about you, there's nothing about your history, about your nationality, about your race, about your zip code, about your, your economic situation, your career path, there's your marital status, there's nothing about you, nothing about you that would prohibit Jesus from welcoming you if you would simply put your trust in His freely given salvation through what He did on the cross and through the life that He lived on your behalf. You know, as, as a church down the road, uh, pastored by one of my predecessors, one of my esteemed pre predecessors, Dr. Ray Ortland, says every week as their mantra, I'm a complete idiot, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. That's the gospel. If you're considering Christianity, that's it. You're a complete idiot. You, your future can be incredibly bright in Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. But the second part of this is this. If you become a friend of Jesus, who, by the way, is of Middle Eastern descent, dark skin, poor, refugee status when he was a child, very different than virtually anyone in this room, if you're welcomed by Him, it, it, it means that, that your heart now has to open up. This narrow path to which you're called has to lead to a broad embrace. Who are your Samaritans? If you're considering Christianity, you've got to ask that question. Who are the people that I, that I need to start relating to and, and befriending that, that, that up to this point I've despised? People of this race or that race or, or, or nationality or religion or or political persuasion, or, or, or zip code, or moral history. If you go to Luke chapter 15, it says that all of the sinners, all, comprehensive word, all sinners, were, were, were coming to Jesus, and as they did, some grumbled. Some grumbled. See, those outside of Christ are going to grumble about the inclusivity of Christianity while also also accusing Christianity of being too exclusive. It's just the dynamic you've got to sign up for. There's an inclusivity to which you're called. There's also a holisticness about this thing that we call loving people, places, and things to life here at Christ Pres. There is, a, there is both a preaching and a serving dynamic to being sent. There is both a word and deed dynamic to being sent. You cannot have one without the other, and call it of Jesus. So, there's deed ministry, going out into the world 
and, and using whatever resources and power and influence that we have and leverage it to loving well, leverage it to, to, to being the, the most life-giving neighbors that we can be in the places where we live, work, and play. You know, Jesus puts it this way, conquer demons. Love in such a way that people's souls are liberated from the things that enslave them. And in some cases, that meant literal demons, demonic evil forces. For others, it meant helping people get out from under, you know, the, 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 the oppression of substance abuse, of pornography addiction, of greed, of lying, of workaholism, of anger, of selfishness, of overeating, of undereating, and so on. Heal the sick, he says. You know, th this should be an affirmation for those of you in Nashville who are part of the healthcare industry or who are counselors and therapists. Healing is of God. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you're doing this kind of healing work, you're doing the work of God. Go out and mend broken bodies. Also mend broken communities, broken family systems, broken work cultures. You know, this is why as a church we, we, are, we are so committed to, 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 to use the resources that God entrusts to us in the best possible way to do battle with where stuff is breaking people. Addiction, mental illness, sex trafficking, uh, incarceration, race relations. We're, we're involved as a church in all of these things and many more that could be maybe put under the mercy and justice category. And we're also deeply involved in, in what we call faith and work integration for the redeeming and healing of work culture and office environments and, 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 and leaning against the broken edges and, and smoothing out the broken edges of industries. We want to help Christians from our church and, and from outside of our church to, to, to understand that, that, that part of being sent is going into your places of work and creativity and fixing things. And, and, and having a redemptive value-add presence there. So there's deed ministry, but there's also the ministry of the Word, to be public and extroverted about your faith, to be, to be shy and humble about yourself, but to be boastful and bold about Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. You know, heal the sick, Jesus says, and say the kingdom of God is near. Heal and say. Do and speak. And this is where it gets precarious because Jesus claims to be the truth, not a truth, but the truth. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is the narrow gate. Every other path is the broad gate. It sounds pretty narrow for such an inclusive movement, doesn't it? You know, John Hick, who's a, call him a pluralistic religion professor, he says this, as a critique against Christianity, he says, once you discover that there are intelligent, good people whose beliefs are different than yours, it's arrogant and condescending to try to convince them to believe as you do. 
But isn't that, with all due respect, an arrogant and condescending attempt to convince people to believe what he believes? That it's not Christianity that's the way, the truth, and the life, but religious pluralism that's the way, the truth, and the life. See, everybody's a fundamentalist. Everybody, everybody is a fundamentalist. The question isn't whether or not you're a fundamentalist. The question is, what are your fundamentals? I want to hang my hat, and I hope you do, on the fundamentals of one who so loved the world that He gave, who used His power by laying down His power in order to bring healing to the world. There is a social element to the gospel. You know, theological correctness does not make your Christianity complete. In fact, it just makes you a devil if that's all you've got, because even the demons believe everything in Scripture, the Scriptures say, and shudder, because they're not surrendered to it. Knowledge, there's this kind of knowledge, this kind of theological knowledge that puffs up, that makes, arrog- makes a person arrogant, in other words, and makes it very difficult for you to engage the social elements of the gospel. But social gospel without saving gospel, back to the importance of word ministry, social gospel without saving gospel isn't gospel either. The most universal sickness, the sickness that everybody has, is the sickness on the inside, not the sicknesses that are happening out there. Case in point, when Jesus heals a paralytic, you know, this paralyzed man, you know, his friends, you know, urgently bring him into the presence of Jesus. You know, we hear that you heal people. We know, we've seen that you heal people. And, and, and what they're doing is that they're, they're, they're behaving and assuming as if the man's most urgent need is to be able to walk again. And, and, and of course, Jesus tends to that. He starts with deed ministry. He starts with the ministry of compassion and care. Stand up. Start walking. Do, stop laying on your mat. Carry it. I'll show you how strong I've just made you. Carry it. Carry it on out of here. And by the way, your sins are forgiven wait a minute, what does that have to do? It has everything to do with it, because that's your deepest sickness, is your alienation from God. That's where you're crippled the most. That's where you're disabled the most. See? And then there's kindness. Don't go out as bullies. Don't go out as coercive people or abrasive people or aggressive people or partisan people. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. I'm sending you out to live gentle, to live humble, to live kind, even among the wolves. He says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And and here's your starting point with everybody that you encounter. Every house that you enter, start this way. Declare peace, shalom, a desire for flourishing over that house. Start there. Because the best way to win hearts, or, or, the best, or the best win is to win hearts, not wars and not elections. You know, wars and elections may have their place, but the best win is to win hearts. The best win happens through persuasion, not coercion, through love, not law. See? And it's love that gets you to want to obey the law. So, so you get everything together if you start with love, if you start with declaring peace over a house. And Jesus says, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. 
And then he shows us what it looks like to shake the dust off when he starts pronouncing woes over all of these oppressive Roman cities. But here's what we need to understand about the word woe. It's a word born from compassion, not scorn. It's a tender word. It's like the doctor who finds an incurable disease uh, lodged in, in the secret you know, place of, of, of the physical body of, of her patient. And she's tempted to withhold information about that cancer or that heart disease because it might be awkward to break the news, or it might cause somebody to cry or to get mad, and, and she doesn't want to be part of anything that might cause somebody to cry or to get mad by telling them they're sick when they want to be declared healthy. But wouldn't that be a cruel thing to, to see cancer and not talk about it and, and say, oh, you've just got a common cold? It's the same here with the gospel. It's utterly cruel to think that your gospel is only social. Oh, I'm just called to compassion. I'm not called to preach the gospel. Oh, yes, you are. Or I'm not, I'm not called to preach the gospel. I'm just, or I'm, I'm not called to compassion. I'm just called to preach the gospel. Oh, yes, you are called to compassion. True love includes tender woes, being willing to speak those woes, and offering help word and deed from a posture of kindness. But you, you've got to embrace weakness. We've got to embrace weakness to get there. You know, the 72, it says, return to Jesus with joy. They said, even the demons are subject, so far so good, to us. And Jesus said, you just lost me there. And that to us part, it goes on in verse 19, I have given you authority to tre tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy Satan, and nothing shall hurt you, but don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the demons obey you. They don't obey you. They're obeying me. Don't rejoice that you've been out there crushing it. Do not, do not, do not. You've had a good run for now, but every good run, unless I return first, every good run ends in disaster and death. Mortality rate, one person for every one person. Don't rejoice in this. You're not going to take your net worth with you. You're not going to take your, your position and your status with you. You're not going to take the day or the season you just had of slaying demons and dragons with you. Naked you came, and naked you will depart. Don't rejoice in this. Enjoy it while it lasts, of course, but don't rejoice in it. Don't hang your hat there, because in chapter 20, 22, Judas is going to betray Jesus. The disciples are going to be bickering about who's the greatest. Jesus is going to be arrested. Peter's going to betray Jesus three times. And then in chapter 23, Jesus will be crucified. He'll die. He'll be buried. And then what? You're all going to be running scared, but then he's going to come up from the dead. Yay, back on top. Oh, no, book of Acts, Pentecost, you know, church becomes 150 people. It grows from 150 people to over 2,000. Yay, we're back on top again. Wait, but there's still martyrdom around the corner for you. Don't hang your hat on that. Ten of the twelve disciples died as martyrs along with so many others. There's disciples all over the world still dying today because of their faith, and humans all over the world dying because of their sin and because of their existence. To exist is to be on a trajectory toward death. Don't hang your hat on something that's going to be taken away from you. If you base your joy on circumstances, you're going to be subject to emotional schizophrenia. 
You're going to be up one season, down next season. Up one season, down the next. And you can also so easily, Jesus says, be deceived into thinking that you are under the blessing of God because things are going well when you actually might be under a curse. You know, most of these cities that, that, that Jesus pronounces woes over, they're affluent cities with industries thriving in them, economic engines humming, and he's pronouncing death over them. Why are the 72 cent in the first place? Because Satan is succeeding, wreaking havoc on the world and in bodies and souls and communities. He says, when you re return rejoicing, recognize this, and maybe we have this in retrospect now. The 72 returned rejoicing in their great season of ministry and impact, but do we realize that among them was a man named Judas? A man named Judas. Just as Peter never lost the favor of God when he was betraying God, Judas never had the favor of God when he was healing sick people and casting out demons in Jesus' name. In Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, perform miracles, heal the sick in your name, and I will declare, I, will never, I never knew you, because your whole, what you're hanging your hat on are the words, did we not? You're missing the whole point. You know, the good life is less about crushing it and more about feeling your need for Jesus. And Jesus helps them with this by creating conditions of scarcity. He says, when you go out, don't take money with you. Don't take supplies. Go barefoot. Don't even take shoes and become completely dependent on the kindness of God and the generosity and hospitality of complete strangers. See, He sets them up. He sends them out for, for a, an impossible mission and then makes it even more impossible. It's like reducing Gideon's army to 300 people. You know, He's trying to, to cultivate an allergy in us, and it's the allergy we all want, the allergy to self-sufficiency. You know, Pastor Chattanooga Pastor Joe Novenson says this, the feel of real faith is this, it's not strength. Strength is not the feel of faith. Dependent weakness, that's the feel of faith. You know, some of us are frustrated with the limitations that God has put on us, economically, in our careers health limitations. Maybe we feel like we've got, we got the personality that nobody wants, including us. But then He also puts limitations on, on the things that He tells us to do, like give money away generously, keep the Sabbath, forgive people who've injured you, work for reconciliation with those that you've injured, cultivate the fine art of apologizing. Because the feel of faith is not strength, it's dependent weakness. You know, they're, 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 I, I almost didn't go into ministry. You know why? There, there, there are two classes that I almost failed. I was a pretty good student other than these two classes. The, the two classes I almost failed were driver's ed <laughs> and public speaking. I was terrified, so terrified of getting in front of people that I almost did not go into ministry. The other was creative writing. The anchor we want is not the anchor of crushing it now. The anchor that we want is that our names are written in a place where they're going to be still written then. 
See, if we, if we look at our lives as a timeline, as, as a series of chapters, we're living in the middle chapters and there's tension and disruption and vulnerability, even on the best days in the middle, middle chapter. But the, the last chapter has already been written, okay? It's like you've gotten a spoiler. You know, for me, it's the North Carolina Tar Heels. Let's, let's say that, that I've gotten a spoiler. Somebody says, you know, they won the national championship on a buzzer shot, and they told me before I get a chance to hit play and watch the game. I'm relaxing throughout the whole game, even though they're down by 21 at the half because I know they're going to win on a buzzer shot. That is the life to which you're called. You win on a buzzer shot. Something masterful is going to happen when Jesus returns, makes all things new, and sets into motion the new heaven and the new earth where your name is already written. Let me tell you, as one who has prayed for hours at the bedside of a dying person and buried way too many elderly people, middle-aged people, teenagers, and children to just brush by this. This is what you need. The knowledge and the emotional wealth that comes from knowing your name is written in heaven. Be leery of pep talks that include things like the life you've been given is not enough. Chase after more. Be awesome. Be strong. And do, do, do. Achieve. Win. Nail it. Crush it. Do those things, but disconnect your emotional umbilical cord from all of those things. If God gives you the ability to crush it, to nail it, to succeed, whatever, slay demons, heal the sick, do it. But don't attach your umbilical cord to that, because that cord is going to get cut. He says, this is the good life. Another has already been awesome for you, been strong for you, achieved for you, won for you, nailed it by getting nailed for you, crushed it by getting crushed for you. Embrace weakness. Rejoice that your name is in heaven. Ask God, as you already have in the singing, to make you poor and keep you low so that you can get the feel of faith, which is not the feel of strength, but the feel of dependent weakness. Then you'll be ready to shake the earth. Then you'll be able to even defeat demons in the places where you live, work, and play. I pray that for you, and I pray you will also pray that for me. Let's pray. Jesus, cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. Make me poor and keep me low, seeking only thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit. Lay me humbly at thy feet. Amen.